It's great to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Um, Whether you find yourself here in person or online, um, we must hold tight to that truth, that God's presence is here despite regulation or uncomfortableness or things that are unknown to us, that God's presence resides with us today. A reoccurring theme that we have had ever since we arrived and even before was continued apology that this could not be the welcome that this church would want it to be. And as we heard the sentiment and we heard the sadness behind the voices knowing that there probably was a party that would be planned in normal times, I want you to know that we have felt God's peace and presence and joy in ways that we cannot describe. And that as a church, we have seen the body of Christ mobilized, despite regulation and requirements, that we know that God's presence is here, that we know that God is moving, and that from the very moment that Michaela and I sat down at the dinner table and talked all night because we knew it was time to leave where we were, we began to feel God's peace in a way that we had not before. And as we began to feel God's peace more and more, More complications arose, yet that peace endured. Whether it was the 40-hour-long road trip to get here, or the four hours at the border, or the countless hours of paperwork we filled out, never once did we question that God had been leading us here. And so our time here in Calgary, even for these two weeks that we've been out and about, we have known that God has called us here. And not just that God has called us here, but that God has called this church to this place and this community and this city. And so we look forward to partnering with you all in ministry, whatever that might look like. But this is our home. This is a place where we desire to grow and learn and listen. And so would you extend that to us? Would you extend your grace? And would you show us what it means to follow Jesus in Calgary faithfully? So as we read the scripture this morning, let's open up with this word of prayer that we read each week that reminds us of the importance of what we gather into today. Lord, would you open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say today. Amen. Now would you stand in reverence and respect for the reading of God's word this morning? We find ourselves in Matthew chapter 21. Verses 23 through 32. When Jesus entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one question. If you tell me the answer, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven or was it of human origin? They argued with one another, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the crowd, for all regard John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second and said to, said him, to him the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not. Which of the sons did the will of the father? They said, the first. 
Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are going into the kingdom ahead of you. For John came to you by the way of righteousness and you did not believe, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. Even after you saw it, you did not change your mind and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. A fascinating passage, I think, for us this morning, because we have to recognize that as Jesus enters this temple, there is a large amount of tension offered to the reader, because the temple was the center of life for the nation of Israel. This was the place where their identity was founded, and so the chief priests were then responsible for protecting that identity. This posture stems all the way back to the Old Testament and the establishment of the tabernacle, and the life of the priest was one of dedication. It was a life of one who was called to protect against the things that might threaten the very identity. So they begin to engage Jesus with a question. By what authority do you do these things? And who gave you this authority? They're not only calling out his teaching in this moment, but they're calling out the countless miracles and healings and forgiveness of sins that he has been doing unapproved by the temple. And Jesus comes back to them with a classic Jewish teaching technique uh, called Midrash, this engagement of questioning with one another. And he looks at their question and he responds with another question, a rather frustrating thing if you've ever been, uh, had a parent that looks back with questions upon questions. But not only does Jesus show his heritage in this moment, he challenges the very question that they offer to him. See, first Jesus sees an error with the question. Because this question incites another question that perhaps as the, the, those that are to guard the temple, those that are to guard the identity of Jesus, perhaps these individuals, these chief priests, have come to assume the very authority that they were tasked to guard. And so the authority that God has been given over this place, perhaps in this moment, the chief priests fear that their authority might be lost. Perhaps in this moment, they fear that their own identity that they have created, despite a God that invited them to give praise to him, perhaps in this moment, they fear that all that they have gained might be lost. And so they approach Jesus in the middle of his teaching. Imagine for a moment in the middle of our sermon on Sunday, somebody came in and shut it all down and said, you can't be saying those things. See, in this moment... Perhaps they have failed to see God as an authority in the temple. But even deeper, perhaps they have failed to see God as an authority in their own lives. And so it's to address this misunderstanding. Jesus looks not to himself, where one might expect, but he points to a man named John. You see, John was a faithful follower of Jesus. He was a faithful follower of what it meant to be sold out for what the divine was doing in the world And Jesus points to him because almost it feels like it would be simpler if Jesus just answered their question and said, well, God is in authority and God has given me this authority, but perhaps they would not hear. So he points to one whose life answers that question. That the ministry and work of John, that perhaps the way that he does that work answers the very question that they are seeking And Jesus says, if you want to understand God, look at this man who is following in ways that we were called to follow. 
Another thing we need to know about John is that John was baptizing. And he wasn't baptizing just anywhere, but he was baptizing in the Jordan, a place that was in the wilderness. See, as the temple was the approved space in which God resided, there were approved spaces in which baptisms took place. These baths that they referred to as mikvah baths were the places that they sanctioned and said, this is the space where baptism can take place, but John does it somewhere else. And the tension rises in the story as the chief priests are reminded about this individual who is breaking every code and regulation. And so he looks to this man who is baptizing in the wilderness, who makes a clear statement about where he believes God to reside. That perhaps God resides in the temple, perhaps God resides in the approved baths, but perhaps God resides elsewhere. Perhaps God is found in the wilderness. For the chief priests, this sort of behavior is not only misplaced, but threatens to destroy all that they loved. And I think it's really easy for us to take shots at these chief priests, to critique and condemn their action in this moment. But I ask ourselves this question, do we ever consider our faith to be precious to us? So precious, in fact, that we would frame it, that we would put it on a shelf, that we would keep it from anything that might bring it harm This extends beyond just our faith, but even the things that strengthen that, our small groups, our ministries, our church style and structure. These things matter to us, and for someone to disrupt them can cause a certain disruption in our own lives. While these things become precious to us, we can often tend to cling tighter than we ought to. I remember when we were packing up our house. And we began to look at the things that we had accumulated and wonder why we ever bought that thing to begin with. But then the things that were most precious to us, we would spend the most amount of time packing and assuring that nothing would happen. Probably spent a good hour or two wrapping our dining room table again and again and again because I did not want anything to happen to that table. And while it's easy for us to do this with our faith, it fails maybe to understand a fundamental truth of the kingdom that it was not given to us, that we might hold tightly to it, that it was not given to us that we might hold it to ourselves, but it was given to us that it might continue to expand not only us, but around us. This idea of expansion, I think, invites us to reflect on maybe tensions in our own lives. If you're a parent, you know this tension well, the moment you see your child walk for the first time, when you drop them off at school for the first day, walk them down the aisle, or see them move away. This thing that we find so precious that we hold tightly to, the moment that it begins to become something bigger than us, we don't know what to do. And I think in this moment, Jesus is pointing out a similar tension in the chief priests. So the story continues with a parable, and Jesus says, what do you think? An interesting question that I think gives me hope in this moment that Jesus doesn't simply dismiss their question, but he invites them to engage in conversation with them. I wonder if many of the tensions that exist in our world today would be solved with the simple act of conversation. That perhaps if we listened to one another and learned and engaged and asked better questions, we would begin to understand one another in a way that we cannot with simple statements of certitude. See, this question showcases a certain posture and invitation by Jesus. While their question might be misplaced, Jesus invites them to a pursuit of something truer. 
And this parable in particular, much like all parables, is meant to offer a sort of correction. Jesus has addressed a problem, an issue, a a different way of living that the chief priests are not to be living, and so invites them to listen to this story as a way to make them consider how they might correct their own life. The characters in the story are the father, his two sons, and a vineyard. And a few things we must, be, we must note in our exploration of this story is that the father's invitation is to both sons, and it is the very same. That there is no hierarchy of the sons in this story, but hear me that the same invitation is given to both. And Matthew is always looking to Israel, as we've heard week after week. And so surely in this story, Hebrew ears would have perked up when not one son was invited, but two. In the ministry of Jesus, the inclusion of the outsider has become more and more pronounced. So far, Jesus has been baptized outside of the approved baths. He's healed lepers, engaged with tax collectors, cleansed the temple of the oppressive money changers and salesmen. So nothing too disruptive so far. But these sort of actions took Israel squarely in the face and challenged what they have come to understand as their own position as the people of God. For Israel was called to be God's priestly kingdom and holy nation, this story that transcends throughout all of Scripture. But somewhere along the way, they had begun to forget their calling to witness to the world about the authority of who God was. So let us turn our focus to the second son, The one who is invited to participate in what God is doing says yes. However, once the father turns his eyes away, the son declines. Surely this character would have turned all listening Hebrew ears and earned Jesus a few uncomfortable looks in this moment. But now back to the first son. While the second son perhaps comments on Israel and their inability or lack of desire to be who God has called them to be, to join in the work of the vineyard, the first son invites the reader to consider those maybe outside of who we have deemed on the inside. For this Hebrew community, there were many people that they considered on the outside, many of the people that Jesus found himself with on a daily basis. And notice once again that the Father calls them the very same But their response is very interesting. See, while the second son shows pride in their own quick response, the response of the first shows perhaps something different. For those outside the regular life of the temple, maybe for those outside of the regular life of the church who know what to say, where to sit, how to act, to come in from the outside can be rather intimidating, can provide some insecurity And what I think is revealed in the son's response is perhaps some doubt that the invitation was really genuine. Maybe the questions buzz around in their mind, what if the father didn't mean it? What if I'm not able to do the work? What if the workers don't accept me? And while there's much to unpack in this parable, it's important that we remember these few things, that the father has invited all to join in the work. No resume, no interview, no references. And aren't we thankful for that in our own lives? That God did not ask for those things for us to enter into the work, but simply invited us, and we stand here today as a testament to that. See, the more precious our faith, our small groups, our ministries, our church becomes to us, the more we want to protect it. 
And what has the most propensity to mess things up in our lives is other people. Other people can come into our space that we have created, that we have crafted, that we have shaped to serve the needs that we have, and other people can often get in the way of that. But surely, like good church people, we don't do this on purpose. Perhaps we struggle with these temptations. When we engage with people we might consider outside of our community, I asked this rather pointed question this morning. Do we get excited when visitors walk in the door? Of course. But do we get more excited when perhaps ones walk in the door that can serve the needs that we have? Perhaps ones that walk in with musical talent and ability, ones that can serve on an already established team, that this temptation exists among all of us no matter what. But I think Jesus is calling us to a different posture For deep down, Israel had manifested into a religious community that received the grace, that wanted to do everything in their power to protect it. They wanted to hold on to it, frame it, keep it on a shelf, and save it from ever being compromised to what they had understood it to be. Perhaps we create ideas of what our faith is to be, how it is to look, and how it must challenge us. But when Jesus calls us towards something different, We struggle. And I think the point that Jesus is making here is that our faith that we have been given was perhaps never solely ours to begin with. Perhaps the faith that we have been given was never meant to be put on a shelf, to be kept safe, to be packed away that none might ever know. And I think perhaps ideas come come to us like this from the way that we might understand God to act in the world. We turn back to an old story found in the book of Exodus, an old story that was rooted in Israel's identity. When this man named Moses, the one through whom God was shaping Israel's identity, gave a rather lofty request to the Lord and asked that he could see God's divine glory. I think a rather bold ask even for Moses. And so God comes in this moment and makes a compromise. and says, I will hold my hand over you. Hold my hand over your eyes and I will pass by in front of you. And when God's hand was moved off of Moses' eyes, all that Moses could see was the back of God. And while this story has been potentially problematic and confusing for people throughout generations, I ran across a comment that I thought was fascinating and very poignant for us today is that commentators have suggested that Moses in this moment could only see the back of God because it understood a fundamental characteristic of who God is. That to see the back of God reminds us that God is not standing still, but is always on the move. So for those that follow, we'll only see the back because we are invited to pursue each and every day. For to follow God is not to simply arrive, but is to take up our cross daily. So what is found in this parable is a comment that perhaps Israel has stopped their pursuit to the point that when Jesus, God incarnate, God made man and taken on flesh in the very world in front of them, begins teaching in their temple, they fail to recognize him. And they fail to recognize that God has been leading them to this point all along. So Jesus looks at them and asks them, which son did the will of the Father? This ending of the parable, while a seemingly simple question, would not have been easy for the chief priest to answer. 
You can feel their gritted teeth as they look at Jesus and admit that perhaps they, like the second, have accepted the call of God but walked away. Israel had been given a precious gift. The God of creation had called them to be God's priestly kingdom and holy nation, and they were to be an avenue through which God engaged the world, and Israel's story does not begin here in the seat of influence, but it begins in a place of wandering. It begins in a place of wilderness. As Israel is led out of the bondage of Egypt, God begins to form them into a people with a holy identity and calling. In other words, they were to be a transformed people that would go on to lead others into the presence of transformation. Jesus ends with a rather interesting comment about two vocations that would not have earned respect in the Israelite community. Jesus indicates to these chief priests and these listeners that those that would enter the kingdom of God before them would be the tax collectors and the prostitutes. Not exactly the people that Israel would be inviting to be at the front of the line to enter into the kingdom. But I think we must remember for a moment the heritage of the disciple Matthew, a tax collector, one who was wandering in his life without purpose, and Jesus called him. Perhaps we might remember back to Israel's very identity, the moment at which they entered into the promised land and God used a prostitute, a woman named Rahab, who Matthew would go on to include in the genealogy of Jesus early on in this text. That perhaps Jesus reminds, reminds these chief priests of these individuals because he wants to remind you that God's mission and vocation is not found simply in the temple, but is found in the wandering and the wilderness, in the places of the unknown where people are still wandering. It is here that we find the crux of the passage that Jesus says to the chief priests, and even after you saw it, you did not change your minds and believe him. Clearly, these religious, religious leaders love the Lord. Clearly, they know the Torah and the importance of the temple, and none of that was ever in question. But what is in question is that perhaps they have forgotten who they were called to be. And I wonder if at times we can become so con consumed with our own presence at the feet of Jesus that we can begin to forget that we were not called to stay there but rather we were called to be a people looking for others that might still be lost in the wilderness. But for a moment, we must acknowledge why we don't do this. For the wilderness is unappealing. It's lifeless. It does not feed our souls, perhaps, in the way that we have become accustomed to. And maybe there's fear that we won't know what to do. Maybe there's fear that we might fall into old patterns and leave the feet of Jesus where we have found peace. Or maybe we've walked there before, but like the second son, turned away. However, we must remember that God's presence is not simply found in the temple, but is found in the wilderness. That God's presence is not simply found here in moments like this where we gather as a people, but that God's presence, like in the story of Moses, is on the move to a point where we will be lucky to keep up. This is our holy vocation. This is the task to which we have been called. And if this season has taught us anything, let it be that we are better together.
Do we feel a burden when we look around this room and recognize all the people that are not with us? How much more is the burden that God feels for those that are wandering in the wilderness? As we come to know the fullness of the kingdom of God, we will feel it beckon us forward. Maybe some of us have felt that before. We have felt God's calling leading us towards something. But I assure you, if you keep your eyes and ears open, we will feel the same voice beckon us back, back into the wilderness, a place where only God can transform those that so desperately need it. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward as we close out this morning. Samuel Shoemaker was an Episcopalian priest that perhaps some of you have heard before. In the early 1900s, he had a great influence on a group that would later be known as the Alcoholics Anonymous. And he wrote this poem as a rather poignant call to the church to be a people not so consumed with their presence at the feet of Jesus, but a people that perhaps continued to remember where we once came from, that we were once lost. And although we are now found, we still were once lost, and that identity matters. So Samuel Shoemaker said this, I stand by the door. Neither go too far in nor stay too far out. The door is the most important door in the world. It is the door through which we walk when we find God. Sometimes I take a deeper look in. Sometimes I venture in a little further. But my place seems closer to the opening. So I stand by the door. Where is God leading us as a church in a season like this? I don't have the answer to that question, but I know that wherever it might be, it will continually challenge our preconceptions of God as long as we keep God on a shelf, in a frame, close to the chest that nobody might know. It will challenge, and it might frighten us at times. And trust me, it will often seem inefficient. Wendell Berry, an American poet, said it like this. The church must be like the fox who takes more steps than necessary, sometimes in the wrong direction. But we can rest in the fact that we are following a God who beckons us to join in the work, a work that will always and forever answer the question, by what authority do you do these things? Might we as a church posture ourselves Might the work that we do in our ministries, in our small groups, in our Sunday morning gathering, in our everyday life, might the way we do that work answer the question with great passion. We do these things by the authority of the one who created the whole world, calls it out of bondage to sin, and invites us to participate in what God is doing for all people. So church this morning, let us celebrate the grace that has been given but also let us not forget where we have come from. For it is in that that we will continue to engage in the work of the Master.